You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Well, here we are, everyone. Hello, everybody. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights Booksellers and Publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to another installment of City Lights Live, the virtual extension of our events calendar, where we continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love. As is customary at the beginning of each event, I'd like to acknowledge that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. I'd like to take this moment to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. It is always a pleasure to welcome Gina Apostol to City Lights, even if it's only virtual. A new book by her is an auspicious occasion indeed. We've had the great delight of featuring her many times in the past. Though today we are celebrating the publication of her new novel, La Tercera, published by our friends over at Soho Press. It is a deeply personal, emotionally engaging, and historically encompassing novel, exploring the life of a family in its relation to Philippine history, marked by surviving across generations the consequences of colonization, catastrophe, war. Ms. Apostol meditates on the difficulty of capturing the layered nuances of the past, and yet realizing that a failure for us to make the attempt whether be it as a family or as a nation, may really extract a very terrible cost. Gina Apostol is the author of the novels Bibliolepsy, Insurrecto, Gun Dealer's Daughter, and The Revolution According to Raimundo Mata. She is a recipient of the Penn Open Book Award and two Philippine National Book Awards. Her essays and stories have appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Foreign Policy, and many other places. She has made her home in New York City and Western Massachusetts. She comes to us today from Italy. Joining her in conversation is R. Zamora Lindmark. He is a poet, novelist, playwright, educator, and the author of three novels. These include Lecce, Rolling the R's, which has been adapted for the stage, and The Importance of Being Wild at Heart. He has also published four poetry collections, including The Evolution of a Sigh and the collection Pop Verite. He has taught creative writing at the University of Hawaii and the University of Miami, and he divides his time between Manila and Honolulu. Before we begin, I would like to inform you, we're going to be posting links in the chat function of your Zoom dashboard with which you may purchase copies of the books. We'll also be featuring a Q&A at the end, so please do post your questions in that same chat function. So now, give us a warm welcome to Gina Apostol and Arza Mora Lindmark. Welcome to you both. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, City Lights. Thank you so much, Peter. And hello, hello. You're in Rome. What time is it there now? Me? For yeah. me? Uh-huh. Eight o'clock p.m. P.m. Also, it's eight in the morning here in Honolulu. Mm, yeah. Exactly. I'm, I'm... Hello to everyone. I love seeing the faces. Oh, I see it. Um, anyway, so... <laughs> um, when your publisher first asked me to read your book to blurb it, I said, sure, because I was down in bronchitis, right? <laughs> so I said, sure, Mark, email it to me. And so I printed it out because my eyes are so bad. And I was like, oh my God, what is this? War and Peace Be With You by Gina <laughs> Karenina? 
<laughs> and it was like, it was, but I, I read it in like three days and I loved it. And I have, to, I have to tell you this. Um, and I guess my first question is how, this is an epic. You're talking about a family clan that spans over a hundred years, right? Mm -hmm. And um, with two family trees and their names mm -hmm. are repeating a la Arcadio Buendia. Mm -hmm. uh, Buendia. And I was wondering how long did it take you to, to write this book? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, it's quite a while because, well, the current version was really done more or less during the pandemic, you know, so whatever it is right now is, um, is, is a, it's a pandemic novel, but <clears throat> I'd been doing the novel called William McKinley's World for quite some time. I did it, be I started it before Insurrecto. Remember, Insurrecto was my recess novel from William McKinley's World, so I was doing this novel about these two brothers, one of whom, you know, revolutionary versus collaborator, and one is going to kill the other. But the current iteration of this really came through when I was going home in 2019 for the Philippine Book Festival. And for some reason, I was just, I just felt so sad, mm -hmm. you know, going home. And I was just, I just kept thinking about my mother. And then the pandemic happened. And um, so this way of thinking about my mom that had come through during the book festival where I started to rearrange, redo, I had a, no, a way of figuring out how to finish the book um, really happened during the pandemic. So I completely reorganized it where the brothers are used to be foreground, now their background and the return for the mother's funeral becomes foreground, you know, um, so that's what happened to the novel. So it's been a while. I mean, before Insurrecto, I was working on this novel, but it's only during the pandemic that I kind of finished. What I love about this book is that um, I, I oftentimes get asked like, which of the books should, uh, you know, if I, if I pitch a, a, a favorite author of mine and they'll say, oh, which one should I begin with? And I have to tell you, I would begin with this one. I'm, I know you've written five books. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because this is an excellent blueprint to mm -hmm. your other four books. Mm -hmm. right? And I know yeah. it's not a fair question to ask you how long it took you uh, to write this book because the themes in these novels and the subject matter you've been working on since Bibliolepsy, right? Yeah. But when I read this, I, I was like, oh my gosh, this everything that Gina has been working on and has been exploring in her novels mm -hmm. are here, but they're all connected through this, through the lens of this family, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so, I mean, so this is, for me, is a brilliant introduction. And also it makes, for now anyway, with your, uh, your career thus far, with the five books, they make excellent bookends between, uh, between Bibliolepsy, your first book, and uh, um, La Tercera, your last, your fifth, the novel we're talking about now. And coincidentally, they're both about families. 
Yeah, right, right. I'm wondering now that you mentioned it, because Mark also, my editor, also mentioned it, the, the ways that the novel is bringing in so many different, you know, that the global aspect, the Philippine war aspect, the martial law aspect, you know, martial law is in gun dealer, um, bibliolepsy is um, Tacloban. I'm just wondering if it's because also Soho came out mm. uh, during the pandemic, actually, two years in a row with Raimundo Mata and then with bibliolepsy. So I was actually reading these books um. while I was working on La Tercera. Yeah. So I was reading the books. And so I'm wondering about that. I'm not sure if um, there was anything very conscious about it, because this book is really, I mean, it's an, it's earlier than Insurrecto in a way, you know, so it's kind of after um, uh, Raimundo Mata, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. So it's a book that's after Raymond Dumat is trying to get into the Philippine-American war, but it's Insurrecto that gets finished, and this book doesn't get finished. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting, your question. Um, I think it may be because the progress, the process of writing the book has been so long, too, you yeah. know. Yeah. And, and, and you're, you're constant um, diving into, you know, the, um, this history that's, that's, that, that only few people know about. Right, um, the U.S.-Philippine um, relation, colonial relations, and um, you know, but, but it just makes perfect sense. And I think it's 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 a it's it's a brilliant way of uh, for a scholar studying your work anyway. And how <laughs> and I have to give props to Soho Press because they brought up they reissued these books, your first two books that were right. initially published in the Philippines, mm -hmm. right, which is right. Bibliolepsy and um, the revolution according to Rimuju Mata. And, um, but having read it now, it's like, oh my God, this is, and, and further exploration and another set of can of worms about right. the US-Philippine colonial relations yeah. coming out. And so I'm mm -hmm. just like, I'm wondering now, I'm curious what, what your next five books will be about. You know? <laughs> You've just opened this can of worms. You're right. I, I would also say that what's it, what I thought was interesting about writing this book, especially the current version, you know, the the one that came out, the one that's now in, in print, is how very consciously I wanted to be different um, in, in syntactically, syntax-wise, um, tone-wise even. Well, maybe not. There's a lot of humor in all of the books, but... Um, you know, there's and 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 mood even the mood of this, or um, so, and then of and then the the mix of first person and third person that this book is also doing. Um, Insurrecto was all third person. Um, Bibliolepsy is all first person. Um, Raimundo Mata is four first person narrations, <laughs> plus five or six, you know, within the piece. Um, and so this one was also, I thought, um, interesting for me because the voice was for me different. The voice was different. As you're saying, there's a lot more warai. There's a lot more of the Filipino languages in a very in I in a very organic way that I wasn't. You know, I mean, for instance, gun dealer is just you know, it's just advanced placement English. That is what gun dealer is. <laughs> AP English. <laughs> you know, um, and you know, so yeah. So I just think that there. 
it's a, I, what was fun for me was trying to figure out those sentences that would be both simple as well as, um, you know, uh, kind of deep enough, dense enough for all of the, the stuff that I was trying to put in. I want to add, because you brought up humor and you brought up uh, language here and all the traits of your four previous novels, Gina, are active and in this book and they reflect the Pinoy culture and yeah. the nation, right? Yeah. I mean, the um, traits of the Pinoy, I mean, humor, I don't think you can pick up a Filipino novel if you, you don't at one point or another laugh, right? Mm -hmm. uh, right. Because like your you, books. <laughs> but I, oh, there it is. Okay, there's the laughter. Um, uh, but it's, it's an important, comp because it's humor is a, a very important component of our culture. And then here you also have the mixing of mother tongues and borrowed tongues. So I think we have we have more than just one mother tongue in the film. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. And yeah. then with and then the Englishes here, the Englishes that spike and you decolonize with Filipino flair. Right, right. right. Um, I, I was very interested in the in the English because the syntax is going to be quite different um, right. when you're thinking about Filipino English. Right. Um, Filipino English be, oh no, you know, Filipino or the, our languages are so verb based. They're gerund based. There's lots of gerunds. Uh -huh. The nouns are verbs, come uh -huh. from the verbs exactly. um, and how to do that. And I know that I, there were very deliberate syntactical things in the... <laughs> in the book where I go, okay, it has to be that way. You can't, you can't take out the gerunds <laughs> because that's, it's part of the way I'm hearing the language, yeah. And I think it's very important language here because um, first and foremost, I think you're a language writer. I mean, you're a language story. I mean, language is a very, or la uh, it's a very, uh, it's, it's one of the soul of your novels, mm. uh, one of the souls uh, and, uh, and what I love about, and I'm seeing it more and more with this one, maybe this is why I'm like liking this um, book so much is that um, the Warai, the Cebuano, the Taglish, right? The mixing with the English, right? Um, the Gallagher Filipino, mm -hmm. um, the mixing doesn't only happen in the dialogue, mm -hmm. it happens in the narration. Mm -hmm. And I noticed this and I'm, I know maybe because I'm so I just um, I'm more aware of it now because I just finished editing an anthology of Hawaii Creole English stories and poems, right? But in the stories, I noticed that even with pidgin English writers, the pidgin only comes alive when they're talking, in their dialogue, but not in the narration. And I was, I was like, why is that? Why can't we just have a straight out? Like, is it some, you know? Um, way of like uh, showing to uh, the col former colonizer that we can code switch, right? Is it a way, is it a complex? And so when, when I was editing uh, the pieces of the contributors for the anthology I wrote, I asked them, can you go back and narrate in pigeon? Mm. And just make it total pigeon, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and that way it's like, no, because I think reading, um, reading your book, reading any book, whether we're familiar with the genre or not, is an act of reorientation of the mind, mm -hmm. Yeah, right? It's not mm -hmm. disorientation. It's not, you know, it's like, you, well, you can respond mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's, it's, it's and there's a constant, uh, 
like a re somewhat of a like a like a refashioning like i have to like it's a code reading is a code right yeah it's a code switching right from one world to this world to the world that you created right and so with with the english and that's that's why i love this this book because of I, even i don't understand those <laughs> words, you know? but it also brought back and what i don't understand i will read out loud right right like to try and see and i translate it if i'm going to translate it i will italicize it in english right exactly right so and and you don't even do that you just go straight and and it came out or so organic and i wanted to ask you so when you're writing you, you write in well obviously the, the the dominant language in the text is english but you also have characters speaking three or four languages right. so when you're writing this it came out so organic that I, I can, I, I'm afraid to even <laughs> explore your mind when you're writing this because, because you know, when we're, when we're speaking a language, we're participating in the, the space of that language, the culture of that language, right? So it's, that's why it said, oh, you're code switching, right? It's like, you were like code switching four times in one paragraph. Someone wants to hear a passage. Oh, what? <laughs> Someone wants to hear a passage. Oh, I'm wondering if I should read that. Um, and, and maybe I'll read it and then I'll and then see if I can have a, a response to your point. So mm -hmm. this passage is um is actually about language. Um and uh the girl Rosario um arrives from the United States and she's really angry that she doesn't know her mother's language, what I. Um, and then she has to go to school. Tagalog was my first subject on my first day of school. The teacher, Mrs. Mahablanca, also wore a uniform, peach colored and fuzzy fabric, a plump lady whose extravagant hair had a little flip at the side in suspended animation. She did not smell uh, like Dr. Tita Titas, but she did not smell of alliage. She had mosquito wounds on her face. At first I thought they were freckles. freckles. She called out the children's names. One boy was named William McKinley Maceda. Another was Ferdinand Enaje Dumpit. There was a tiny kid in pigtails named Trina Trono Almendras. I was in awe of their names. Maceda, Ferdinand Almendras. These are, by the way, the names of the senators who won in the <laughs> 1971 election, um, for, when Marcos won. They were the names on the election posters. To me, all the words, were connected because too many things were new and I was ignorant. Of course, my teacher did not call out Delgado. That was not my name. But when the, in the middle of class, she called me, I had no idea what was going on. She repeated my name, Rosario. I jumped up, yes, that is I. I stood up from my chair, stepping out to the side like a sergeant beside the long arm chair, the way I saw my classmates did. Filipino Rosario, said Mrs. Mahablanca, Filipino. Touching my desk, I tried to guess what she wanted. Guessing was my mode of passage throughout all those days of my long arrival when I had no idea if my place amid novelty was a permanent condition. Everyone was related. Anything had consequence. The smallest objects had enormous significance because I did not know their names. La bacara, lingpuran, la mesa, puta, terno, tacon. I was always on the edge of decoding a message. Some were easy to figure out, like Brigida, 
that was a refrigerator and only one person in Sologo had one, Shanpoli, the town's user and owner of the sawmill who had a generator. And you could get ice in bulk from him for a party or store your funeral desserts for a fee. Too many things had many names, like the word chair, lingkuran, silya, bangku, butaka, also bed, kamahigdaan, katri, katurugan. Items of breast had many names in the language of my mother, but verbs had only one, lingkod, higda. Pronouns had no gender. Pia meant him or her, and no one cared if you mixed pronouns in English. The way my mom would call me a him and my brother a she, and Manamarga would correct her, but that useless rule is the fault of English, said my mom, and even Manamarga agreed. Later, when I had to learn Spanish, I traced the Warai words in it. Spanish had meaning only as repository of more elemental trace material, its apparition in Warai, la vacara. Face towel, la mesa, table, la cama, bed, el aparador, cabinet, el comedor, dining cab, dining cupboard. I saw the awful joke in the meaning of la mano, hand, but really, Spanish was for outside things, the things you could make. Warais kept their words for the inside, the things that made you up. I grew up with my mom's way with words, the way she spoke Tagalog with indifference and English with guesswork. For her, English is only this wartime novelty, like chewing gum or tennis shoes, some foreign implement of insufficient relevance. Her Tagalog was tokenism, misrecognitions from her warai. It's her warai that was the mineral hoard, a cave of treasure that if I were smart, I'd scrutinize carefully, look for its veins and source in the manner of the pawnbroker, Doña Tesora de Oro examining a carrot, but I never read those words in school. I was 27 when I found actual what I words in a book, I didn't recognize them. I was in the New York Public Library reading the Chronicle of Pigafetta. When I read those words in the book, translated into English and listed by an Italian chronicler for a French audience about the trip of a Portuguese explorer for the Queen of Spain, the spiral of universes that brought my mother's language back to me in a foreign city, made me dizzy. At the New York Public Library, I saw the list of my mother's words with weird Italian spelling. The chronicler's spelling was as improvised as my mom's English in Picafetta's book about his journey around the world with Magellan, Uzaduatulo, also Kirai, Butkun, Pa, Likud, Siko, Tuhud, Kamat, Tudlo, Lio, Utin, Penis, Dila, Tang. In Picafetta's chronicle of his journey around the world with words, the man's spelling needed work. My discovery was that what was most ancient about us, our Easter Island statuary, is our words. I'll stop there. My God. <laughs> so that one was actually specifically about language and learning, learning language, learning the mother's language. So... So there were organically words in Warai, words in Tagalog that you would put in, um, words in Spanish. Um, so, so that's organic in it. I think what you're talking about also is when you're moving into the world of the two brothers, the revolutionaries, um, the revolutionary Jote and the collaborator um, uh, uh, Paco. And what that is, and I thought that was very interesting to do, is when the Philippines moves, that, um, that moment in time, 
when the when the diary the journals are moving from one language to another from spanish to english to waray to tagalog to spanish to you know to english is when the country is also moving its tongues because there's it's a very peculiar situation um that the that i, I was thinking about it um I would have known or my mother would have known people in her life who experienced that move when the Philippines um, shifted mm. from Spanish colonizer to American colonizer. So our tongues, our education tongues um, shifted if you were educated or even if you weren't, you know, because there's so much in Waray, for instance, there's so much Spanish. Um, uh, shifted from the Spanish of the of the first colonizer to the American of the invader of the current invader. That was the current invader at the time. So I was very interested in that shift um, and what it might have meant. So I so the diaries would be the organic kind of nature of language in the diaries lies in the fact that I was trying to capture that moment in time around the early 1899 through 1905 or so, um, when, when Philippine language shifted so dramatically, when you had to learn a different language, you had to move, you had to, it, I think it's a violent shift. I think that invasion, that is also an invasion, that is an invasion of the tongue, the mother tongue is violent. And I think it's emblematic of the violence that we've, um, that is like endemic. It's endemic because it's in our tongue, it's in our speech. And so that's, I think, one, one way to look at the movements and language in the novel lies in the, it, it seems organic to us, but it's actually also an invasion, you know, our multiple languages, partly, not all, um, come from invasion. Uh, okay, that's interesting. I mean, I, I get the whole invasion thing and the violence because there is um, a violence in one lang one native's language get replaced by a, somebody else's language. But right? even for instance, Waray, where you have Tagalog as a right, right. Waray people see exactly. Tagalog as a kind of invasion. So anyway, go ahead. Oh, totally, totally. I agree yeah. because I, I, you know, I grew up in Pangasinan and we speak Filip uh, Ilocano and Pangasinense there. But, but I, I also. What you say is invasion. I'm I'm reading it as more of like there are just certain words and phrases that you cannot translate. Yeah. And because, like you pointed out, and I'm glad you pointed this out with the pronouns, the English language, the English language, as rich as is it, is very limiting. Yeah. It, it 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 cannot. I mean, I think every language has its limitations, mm -hmm. right? And that is why. When you when you interject your prose with these phrases, it's because they're not they're they're organic, but also they, it, it'll be too long for me to explain it. Right? Yeah, and also I think there's also something that I was trying to do here, um, which is that I think it is impoverishing for others <laughs> not to know the richness of what we have. Yeah. I think being able to share with a larger audience that multiplicity and that richness and that wealth that the Filipino experience, that the Filipino experiences all the time, even, I would say this, even if you're mostly monolingual because you're Filipino-American and you, you know, you became part of the American 
you know, colonial, you, you became part, uh, you, you're an, your parents are immigrants and you did not, you don't speak Tagalog. I think you have a sense, you have this sense of another world. You're very, it's, I think, I think we know, even if you don't really speak Tagalog, we know our mother's tongue. We know that there's another tongue out there. And I think, I think it's kind of impoverishing for the rest of the world, for the American audience, not to hear, not to know the world of the Filipino. So that's partly also, I think, one of the things I just decided to do, that you're just going to hear it. Yeah. You know, you're just going to know what this culture is through the way I'm telling the story. Yeah. And, and bravo, to, to, again, to your press for not even, uh, I mean, I don't want to get into it. Oh, but no. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. But, okay. Going back to another thing from the excerpt you just read, I love the names. And in fact, I love <laughs> all the names of your characters from your other books, because I think they're, which I'm not really a fan of, but they're the symbol, right? They're symbolic. Um, let's start with the, your protagonist, Rosario, right? Mm -hmm. Rosario was born in LA, right? Mm -hmm. To a mother from Leyte, right? But for whatever reason, I'm not gonna say it, I'll, the book will tell you, they have to leave LA and go back to the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And then she does, so it's a reverse migration, right? Yes. And then she's there, and then she grows up there, she gets educated there, and then she goes back. So this is the return, really. The first return narrative is back to the US, not to, not to the Philippines, the return narrative is the, back to the U US where she goes to grad school, eventually becomes the novelist that she is, working on her third book, which she completes at the end of, the, at the end of La Tercera, um, a day after Typhoon Yolanda, which mm -hmm. is 2013. Right. So your yeah. novel begins in like turn of the 20th century and it ends like 20, that's like 113 years of my solitude, solitary <laughs> confinement. <laughs> 113 hours of my solitary confinement. <laughs> but, uh, um, but I love the name, especially the in, in Rimundo Mata because they're, they represent who they are, right? Mm -hmm. And also they represent what they do. Like, mm -hmm. And here, I don't know. Okay, mm -hmm. Rosario is a very common name. Yeah. Uh, in the Philippines, right? Mm -hmm. But when you think of it, and I'm looking at the structure of your novel and how your novel is constant, it has these like apostol trademark of digressions or um, episodic vignettes, right? Uh, uh, um, in the form of memories, right? Of remembering that. Rosario makes perfect sense why she's called Rosario, because Rosario is, of course, obviously rosary. But if you think of the rosary as a structure, right, it's like it's composed of beads, yeah. right? And mm -hmm. each, each, and what she's doing is just obviously she's connecting the beads together to create this larger narrative called mm -hmm. La Tercera, right? Um, and we're, uh, but it's also like, when, we, when we're praying the rosary, it's like a mnemonic, uh, mnemonic prompt for people to remember the life of Christ, that's for Catholics, right? But in this case, she's recollecting and resurrecting memories of the life of her family and ancestors that go back to like turn of 20th century and that is being remembered, right? On a macro level, she's also remembering the life of this nation, 
in the history of this nation, the damaged history, and 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 this this place that is at risk, uh, whose uh, which history is at risk of of uh, revision, if not erasure. So I think it's only fitting that Rosario is the narrator here with the name like that because she is, for lack of a better word, she's an encantadora. Mm. Right. Yeah. yeah, which is very much a Filipino, um, like a Filipino figure. And it, it might, I don't know if it's because I'm in Rome right now and Rome is all Catholic. I mean, come on, it's just like everywhere, everywhere. And what's interesting about Italy for me is that the symbolism in Italy is so close. Mm. It's so close to Filipino symbolism. It's not the, the the material i mean the just the scenes that they have anyway so um i it's interesting that you say that about rosario because i wasn't again i wasn't very conscious of the whole kind of um religious aspect the kind of uh, the religious encantadora uh, you know encantadora aspect of it incant the incantation the oral because you know our our Catholicism is very oral. It's yeah. it's the rosary, it's the novena. I grew up with novenas, you know, and and the book is chock full of novenas, um, the Ave Maria novenas, the um, the Ave Maria song, um, the the novenas to our late all, all of those that are part of the text. And um, um, so I'm wondering with your bringing up. Rosario, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a practicing Catholic too, but I am so imbued, I think, from my childhood with the, with the Catholic um, world. Mm -hmm. It is interesting to think about the naming and the, and the repetition, because there's a, there's constant repetition of the novenas. There, there are the three saints of the mother, you know, Santa Rita, who's Italian, Santa Rita de Cascia. She's from Perugia, around Perugia. There's San, San Antonio de Padua, who I thought was Italian, but it turns out he's Portuguese. But anyway, he's but his <laughs> he died in Padua. <laughs> so he died up in the Veneto. And then um, and then of course St. Jude. I don't know where St. Jude is from. But uh, so there's so many saints. There's there's all of this Catholic baggage that's in the text. Um I did not I did not see the um, the Rosario. I mean, Rosario. I mean, it, and it is. It's because her mother would have named her. You know, her mother would have named her, and her mother was very Catholic, mm -hmm. and would have used um, uh, something that came from her whatever her what, whatever her birthday was. And I did check the birthday thing. You know, to see what her um, birthstone should be. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but her mother was named, for instance, for an opera because it was her grandfather who named her. So all of these things, for me, naming is so interesting because we don't we don't carry the names that we choose. We mm -hmm. were those names are chosen by parents. Mm -hmm. And when you're thinking when you're thinking of your characters as a writer, you're thinking of all of these things. To be honest, it's it's all of it. Mm -hmm. um, you're thinking of the parents, you're thinking of the grandparents, you're thinking, and, um, and it is interesting to me um, that, uh, that you pick up on the, on the names, the names create the character, but that character is also produced by the world that realistically um, has constructed her, in this case, her mother, so her mother, very Catholic, would have named 
her, given her, not an opera name, not a learned name, which is what her dad gave her, but uh, Mother Mary name. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I just want to reiterate that, you know, aside from the usual symbolism of a name, right, it's what I like about, I mean, the way you, the way your name, the, the names function, your, the names of your characters function, they, they, they relate to the structure of the novel. Yes. It has to be um, all of it, structural, yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. And it's I mean, symbolism would be the least of my, yeah. my, yeah. my interests, yeah. but um, it has to be both structural and yeah. Um, character driven, driven yeah. by the circumstances of the character. And the symbolism is going to be, in my view, elegant and beautiful if it has all of those. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, you know what? I There's so many people uh, commenting and I think we should, Peter, I think we should open up to them because I'm curious to see what they, you know, questions that they have for Miss Apostol here, the, you know, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so let's take a peek here. G. Foster says, the idea of language is essential to families that are displaced. Um, Laura, it's also essential in the Philippines to histories that kind of get displaced. So you, um, the movements of language in, you know, from, let's say, the Spanish to the English, and then with the English, were also kind of not colonized, but were really constructed by the American era politicians of, you know, that came after the, and so you have the Tagalog becomes the main language. And there's a kind of displacement of um, all the other Filipinos with that Tagalog um, empire, the Tagalog um, imperialism too, so. Yeah. Laura comments, uh, I feel it's a whole secret world I know intimately and not at all. Such a great discussion. Mm -hmm. So yeah, everybody, please do post any thoughts, any questions. We're happy to, you know, kind of entertain. So, Could I say something about the names because um, you brought up the names. Uh, uh, so Trina Trono actually appears in my earlier, and she's, yes. yes. she's the publisher in Raimundo Mata, and she appears as a child in um, La Tercera. And it is kind of interesting the way you hold on to the names of your characters, um, uh, the the ways that Magsalin uh, returned to um, from Raimundo Mata to Insurrecto. Um, uh, and in this case, so many of the names here, could I just say this about many, many names in, the, in La Tercera? What I also wanted to do was include the names of the Filipinos that we don't remember in the Philippine-American War. That was my original impulse with William McKinley's world, just to tell the stories of, of Makario Sakai, you know, Manuel Tino, um, uh, the, you know, all of these um, amazing, I think, uh, resistors who, who in many ways, some of them were co-opted, like Dino was co-opted, but Makario Sakai was beheaded by the Americans. He tried to, um, you know, just the story, I tried to figure out how to do his story of how to, um, he tried to assassinate Alice, Alice Roosevelt, the child of the TR, but he, he did not manage to do it. He was instead beheaded. Um, so uh, I, I just think, 
uh, I also wanted to bring in the names of the Filipino heroes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think you're, uh, uh, there's a question, what response are you getting on the politics and histories included in La Tercera? What have Filipinos had to say about the inclusion of, here we go, Imelda Marcos as a character? Yeah, I, um, I have not had too many, I mean, because the, um, this is one of, this is one of my, this book, when it when it first when it was first being published, really only Mark, <laughs> uh, Kirby, um, and then eventually Ken had read this book, um, and so it's just out. So I don't really know um, what people have been saying about. Uh, I, I'll see. I mean, also I'm not on Facebook or <laughs> Twitter anymore, so I don't know. It's really odd when you're not on Facebook. You don't know anything about the film. Oh, I think it's the best. I think it's the best feeling. But I think, <laughs> but I'm glad that that all these characters and these political figures that um, are research are 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 alive and present in your book because of you know what they've done, and we have to be reminded of that part of the history. That does. I don't know if if you're. Uh, I'm sure Mark's aware of this, but or maybe not, but there is a uh, uh, erasing going on in, in the Department of Education in the Philippines, where mm -hmm. they're trying to re, uh, uh, revise, rewrite the Marcos era, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think this is where the power of fiction comes in because now fiction, fiction um, as it has always done in the past, is, is has this way of like providing, um, like a truth savior almost, right? And so uh, whether we like it or not, they will not, we will remember, remember them, but we can remember them in Bibliolepsi, mm -hmm. in their present there. Oh, there's Tasiana Nacionales in, um, in Insurrecto, who's a real figure. Raimundo yeah. Mata is a real figure. And just here, another thing about the names, Raimundo Mata is a real historical figure, but mm -hmm. he was blind and his last name was Mata. <laughs> which is which is like, I mean, it's a real, it's a real figure. But and Cassiana Nacionales, who's really, she really was a nationalist who yeah. tried to overthrow all the Americans in Balangiga. Well, her name is Nacionales. It's kind of weird. No, but I'm glad because you have, you have what you, uh, gun dealer's daughter there, you know, if we're just focusing on the, um, the current president um, administration right now, the Marxists, you have, Gundiller's daughter, you have Bibliolepsy, you have this book, then you have, you know, of course, obviously you have Dog Eaters, you know, and um, the, all these other books of their novels. And now they're, 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 they make excellent and powerful tool, if not weapon, to combat the rev revising that yeah. or omitting or erasing of, 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 of that part of, uh, Oh, oh my God, I'm not talking right, well. Yeah. There's, a, there's a question here. Um, there are two questions. Um, tell us more about the other languages, dialects, and how they have survived. So that's one question. And I will say the Philippines is very, very interesting because um, we just kept our languages. We really have kept them. We're, we're speaking them. Um, 
it's not so much uh it's it's uh, for me it's all it's for me it's an it's an it's a form of resistance it's a sign of resistance against the colonizer that these languages have survived and and they survive in a way that's very alive like Waray has a lot of English a lot of um Spanish etc cetera, etc cetera. but we keep you know the things that are inside and um one basic way that they've survived is that uh, the um, the Spanish, the Spaniards, for instance, did not um, did not teach Spanish to Filipinos. So it wasn't um, something that they were, even though they were required to, they didn't. But at the same time, I think that um, even if they had been taught Spanish, I don't think we would have <laughs> we would have kept our languages. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed. <clears throat> Exactly. No, I, I, I if you go to the Philippines, they but, yeah. will not teach you their language. Exactly. They will make fun of you for speaking their language. They will just start laughing. But it's not something that they would like, you know, automatically try to do, <laughs> you know, but, teach but, you. But unlike language. the other um, countries that were colonized by Spain, um, which is interesting, the Philippines. Yeah, because most of them have more or less lost their languages. Yeah, I mean, they're, exactly. they're, they're indigenous communities that have kept their language, but yeah. the Mexicans have not kept, I mean, most Mexicans have not kept their language. Yeah. They speak Spanish. Yeah. Um, and someone once told me this, someone once said to me, um, yeah, you know, the Philippines never learned Spanish. And I'm going, yeah, we kept our Thank own you. languages. Fuck you, you know? <laughs> Thank God. Thank God on hand, right? But I, I, I'm for all languages, for learning languages, actually. But thank God, because, and, and you know, what they're seeing as, well, it's the easier way to, to control these people, right? Don't let, don't unify them. Uh, don't unite them through one common language, the, you know, the, um, the colonial tongue. Um, so that's the way of rule, divide and conquering through that by not. But even, let's say, even Rizal. Yeah. who wrote beautifully apparently in Spanish. You know, I don't really read the Spanish. But if you go and read like the opening of Filibusterismo, oh. for instance, and he starts with a joke, yeah. the tabo, the ship tabo, which is very funny because tabo is like the, the bathing Cooper. dipper. But yeah. that's the name of the goddamn boat you know, <laughs> that um, Simon and the other people are on. So he's already making a joke in Tagalog, yeah. calling the ship tabo, you know, you know, so I'm just saying that, um, you know, to that question about how they have survived, um, I think they've survived because we have understood it's what we have. Yeah. It's, it's what we can keep, no oh, matter yeah, what. Exactly. So you can take everything, but you can't take my tongue, basically. There's another question here. To what extent do your family and ancestors impact and influence your writing practice? <laughs> I'll say this about La Tercera. Um, okay. It's the first time I've consciously used my family in a very deliberate way, my own personal life in a very deliberate way. I've never, the other ones have been unconscious. My life comes in, but I don't, like even with bibliolepsy, I would say that, you know, the girl fucking around with all of those, <laughs> all of the writers, crashed. that was a lot of fun, you know, but it wasn't, it was, it was, it was, I would say symbolical. <laughs> but anyway, um, but um, and and there were a lot of things that were very personal and insurrecto, but they're, in my view, they were unconscious in the sense that when I understood that they were personal, I was like, oh my God, you know, I, I, I didn't, 
it was new to me that it was personal, that, that so, so much of the backstory of Insurrecto was personal. Um, and I've only come to grapple with that very recently, you know, it came out in 2018. Nilisa, uh, one, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, could you tell us more about why you constantly return to the histories of the Philippine-American War in your novels? Because this is your fifth novel, but well, maybe with the exception of Gun Dealers and Bibi Lexi, the mm -hmm. other three go back right. to that time period. Right, right. I mean, I'm going to finish that that um, response to Caitlin that I have, you know, how in, in, in with the with this book, this one was consciously about um, my mother because I wanted to kind of recall my mother. So the way that this novel works, La Tercera works, it, the way I, I got myself to finish it was to say, if it's a memory that I had, whether or not it's a real one, whether it's a false memory, et cetera, I will put it in the novel, which allows me, as you pointed out, um, Zach, to do a lot of digressive stuff, because as long as I remember it, I'm gonna put all, everything I know about comics in there, you know, mm -hmm. Filipino comics or whatever it is that, you know, the books that I read as a child, you know, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So I mean, that was very deliberate. So that was like the constraint that I gave myself in the novel to allow me to write it because that's how I tend to work. I create a constraint so that I can keep going day by day. And the constraint for La Tercera was, if it was something I kind of remember, I'm going to put it in. And it's kind of consciously recalled. Um, and then, of course, I lie and I make things up. And that becomes the novel. The whole thing about the novel, about writing fiction, is that once you move into a space where you're... Um, where you have the capacity to imagine rather mm -hmm. than simply write down memory, mm -hmm. um, you kind of have a novel. Uh, so that's how I would go with that. The, 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 the Lolo Paco in La Tercera is actually based on my mom's great uncle, um, oh. stuff that I learned about him. Yeah. Uh, I thought my mother was a liar, but yeah, she... Um, it really was, he really was in the history books. Um, so this other question, could you tell us more about why you constantly return to the histories of the Philippine-American war in your novels? Um, I would say it's because I didn't know about the Philippine-American war and there's, and once I start, so I'm not really, okay, this is kind of funny to say, but I'm not, I did start off as a researcher kind of novelist. I wrote Bibliolepsy. Bibliolepsy was a, like fucking people in 1980s, you know, it's like, wow, that's just fun. Um, uh, so, um, so I started off just wanting to play with words. Um, but then um, uh, with Gun Dealer, I, I did some research. I, I still didn't need to do a lot of research with Gun Dealer. Um, but when I did Remundo Mata and I tried to get to the American war, I didn't get to it because I realized um, when we talk about the Philippine revolution, we don't think about the American war. It's only the, Sp the war against Spain. It's only the Spanish war. And so I had to do a lot of research on the American war and I didn't know jack shit about the American war. We have not been told. That story is not told in the Philippines, also in America, but it's interesting that it's not told in the Philippines. It's kind of, so of course I have a thesis about that. And my thesis is, I'm just gonna say it right now, we were genocided and uh, it's not uh, forgetting, it's not an amnesia on our part. 
It is an absolute violent erasure of the imperialist. We were we lost the war, the imperialists won it, the imperialists created the memory. And I think what I was trying to do with La Tercera is figure out how to make the connection between my mother's world, which is so pro-fascist. My mom loved Imelda until the day she died. You know, I was so angry at the same time that I absolutely love my mother. There's no way around how much I'm how much I love my mom. Mm. But throughout her life as a warai, I mm. quarreled with her politics. I have quarreled with the politics of the warai. Mm. At the same time that I am not myself mm. without warai. So this is the kind of interesting entanglement that I have. And so doing the Filipino-American War with this particular text allowed me to think about, literally write the history that made the link between the Filipino-American War and the kind of attachment to fascism and militarism Mm. that we still have. Mm -hmm. Which is why you're alternating between these two periods on the opposite end of the century. You have turn of the 20th century, American colonial period, and then you have present day. Yeah, we don't, and and the fact that we don't really know Mm. 1899 through 1913 or so, through Mm. 1935 maybe, because 1935 is the constitution, the Philippine constitution. We kind of, you know, create like a history of the Commonwealth, you know, and we're kind of moving into a republic after 1935, you know, we're a republic in 1946. Um, But that 1899 to around 1930s, where we don't quite know the why we got to 1935, and that constitution is a bullshit constitution in many ways, you know. Um, So, I think this novel, La Tercera in particular, is trying to trying to make trying to make a link, historical link, personal link, emotional link. Mm-hmm. I think it's also in a very it's an emotional link. Mm-hmm. to to history you know and i think that's what makes this book well epic on uh, epic uh, and uh you know you're going back to the the mother character when i was reading her uh, uh about her uh the first character i'm sorry but the first character that came to mind was remedios the beauty oh yeah remedios yeah Remed- but um, from hundred years of solitude, but unlike Remedios, who did not was not on Earth for very long, she yeah, levitated. I don't like that. So. It was so yeah. beautiful she levitated and never came back. Um, yeah. Adina had a very tragic life, mm-hmm. you know, and, yeah. um, and I think that's part of the reason why I I kept you know one of the many reasons why I kept reading the book was because I was so drawn to her, you mm-hmm. know, and. Um, and as as well as the history that I I am so um, that, that colonial American colonial period in the Philippines I don't know much of you know except for the Thomasites right those school teachers and you're going back to you know this sort of like we're now at a uh, living a time when we're control people are controlling inf- certain few people are controlling information I mean the Thomasites were perfect uh, tools the Thomasite school oh, teachers. Yeah. 
they they could control what to tell their yeah. students, the natives. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they can they're teaching and revising history as they're teaching, right? Mm -hmm. right. So um, or not teaching or um, because they're omitting, right? Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, um, uh, I think uh, any anybody else want to ask anything? But uh, <clears throat> okay, so. Adina, I have a, one question. Adina is a painter, and I know that uh, the last time I saw you was at your place in New York last year um, on the rooftop, drinking, um, <laughs> walking, because um, <laughs> it was my birthday. Uh, but um, you were talking about, I don't know if you're open to it, but uh, talking about it, but art plays art paintings play um, uh, a role here in this book, right? Mm -hmm. And so do you plan on pursuing more about that kind of, yeah. I don't know if I wanna say it. But maybe well, you know, I'm in Rome and this is the segue into, into my next novel. <laughs> Cause my next novel is about the wife of Juan Luna. Uh, no, again, no one talks about, you know because she was killed by Juan Luna. Juan Luna um, killed his wife and his mother-in-law in a double murder, and he was acquitted in Paris of the murders. He killed them in front of his son, who was around six years old or so. Um, and when I learned about that, and again, this is another thing about um, how history is constructed. I learned about it when I was like 30 years old. I didn't know about it when I was a kid, you know, going to school. Um, and so I started looking at Paz. I, I was kind of really, I have mentioned Juan Luna like three times in my novel. And I grew up on Juan Luna Street in Tacloban. So Juan Luna Street. Um, and I really, I mean, here, here are all the Juan Luna themes. Oh. Um, uh, uh, he learned to be a painter in Rome. That's why I'm in Rome. Um, but, um, and he brought his wife, Paz, to Rome on their honeymoon. So I thought when I heard that, I said, okay, Rome really means something to Juan Luna, but what did it mean to Paz? Um, so um, I'm trying to resurrect the figure of womanhood in the revolution, in that period when the nation was being constructed and looking at what that means for nationhood, what that means for revolution, what that means for reform, what that means for um, for concepts of um, freedom, when the national hero again, I will say this about Juan Luna. I he's 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 very admirable as an artist, as as a Filipino who's trying to be himself, you know, as an artist. But he, no one talks about the fact that he killed his wife. And, and when he killed his wife in 1892, he just kept painting. What mm -hmm. the fuck? He just kept painting. So um, uh, he wrote, he painted Bulakenya in the Philippines way after, you know, like 1895 or something. Um, <clears throat> so it's a very troubling um, story in the sense that I think that the Philippine Revolution is very important to our sense of identity and we need to hold that moment in honor as much as 
Um, it helps create who we are, but the questioning of masculinity, patriarchy, et cetera, even in a progressive moment, um, I think will make the concept of nation bigger, mm -hmm. um, more expansively um, uh, complex. And I think, I think we need to remember the women. Awesome. Um, but your your character, the the mother painter, Adina, she's she gets recognized for something else though. Yeah, yeah. For being a businessman. <laughs> for being I don't wanna I don't wanna do the spoiler, but she's not I recognized for who yeah. she or for what she should be recognized for. But there's the I was like, oh my god, and I just started laughing. But anyway, um it's very Tacloban. <laughs> it's very Filipino also. The inability to see the woman in her fullness, you mm -hmm. know, because I couldn't. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do that with my mother. And the and the character in this novel is also unable to do that mm -hmm. with Adina. She mm -hmm. the whole novel is about trying to figure, trying to figure out the relationship of Adina to Rosario's art in many ways, you know, which she has kind of repressed throughout the story. I, I just find I, I, it's really interesting how this novel began really about two brothers mm -hmm. and they be, they were um, the, the foreground. And then during COVID, this is what happens when you're in a I novel, know. brilliant ideas come in and you go, what? You know, and then it be really it's about a mother and a daughter. And I'm yeah. so glad you 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 focused in on their relationships because they were what I didn't get it. Uh, the characters, your characters in Bibliolepsy, didn't get a chance to have that kind of interaction or that kind of history. That's right. Because the parents in Bibliolepsy, um, okay. yeah, novel composed of two novellas, right? Um, you know, they, they didn't make it, uh, didn't, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and so it was up to the, the two sisters or the two daughters to, mm -hmm. um, to, to support each other, right? But here you have, um, Adina, uh, Rosario's mother, and then there's also Adino, right? <laughs> brother. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's such a beautiful, um, book because, it, it gave me more than than just uh, a story about the, uh, the war. <laughs> well, about the family, really, but also that they cannot escape. They cannot escape the bigger, the bigger war out there. You know, uh, the U.S.-Philippine colonial relate. That they're so entangled in that in that history, right? That uh, it's a curse almost. For this yeah. There are two questions here about women. Um, uh, how do you grapple with the women, um, given that the materials are not available, and there are many things that no one talks about? And there's another one here. Um, this one's about art and revolution and nation building, arts complicity in the violent erasure of women. Um, and so I'll, I'll just go with with the second one. I'll just go with two things there. Um, 
yes, art is complicit in the violent erasure of women, at the same time that the work, the work of the artist, the work of art that the artist is trying to do also has, I think, uh, I, I'm saying this because I, um, I'm a, I, it may be because I'm an artist, but the, the work of the artist has, I think, a charge on its own. And the way, but what you're talking about is how art um, attends to the world outside and it must attend to the world outside. And it includes, it must include the world of women within patriarchy and the history, especially, I mean, I'm here in Rome. I mean, this is like, <laughs> this is like patriarchy, patriarchy's patriarchy. I mean, this is empire. Um, <clears throat> where women are just so, you can see it. I mean, I'm just taking pictures of women naked right now with their breasts out and they're supposed to be the Madonna, um, women with their, with scars on the, you know, St. Agatha, Santa Agatha, I'm taking all of these pictures of these fairly gratuitous um, kind of objectifications of women, even as you're, even as they're, they're sacral, they're, they say they're sacred, you know, they're Madonnas. Um, and you can just, just the patriarch, I mean, just the male, the masculine, the, the violent patriarchy is right there, even in the most beautiful Titian, even in the most beautiful Raffaello, you're mm. going to see, you're, you're seeing it. Um, at the same time that, the artist making his art is creating a charge that is also in some ways a form of that individual trying to be free, trying to see, etc. But it's important, as you're saying, Corey, that you need to see the world outside of that art. Um, so the reader is really important. The, the viewer of the paintings, of the paintings of the Renaissance, um, is really important, for instance, that, to see the world that's actually also being constructed by that beauty. Because I will say, Raffaello is a very beautiful painter <laughs> at the same time, you know. Um, and the second, the other question about um, women insurrectionary stories in relation to the nation revolt. The one good thing about the lack of detail about the women is that you can imagine and you can move into a story that um, uh, you can move into the novel. You, you can create a novel precisely because of the lack of information. And in many ways, I don't want at this point, I don't even, there's so little known about Paz. I know I'm not going to get more. Um, and I will not be talking to the family, the pardo, the pottery tabera, because I think that's also useless. Um, <laughs> um, also, I can't. I mean, I mean, the pardos are they're weird also. But anyway, um, um, uh, the absence of information actually allows art to happen. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. I think there's, but you also, and you also want to leave room, right, when you're writing for imagination, for the yeah, element of yeah. surprise, to be right. surprised, yeah. to have that unexpected, because for all we know, as writers, like, maybe that is what is meant to be on the page, not yeah. the research that, or not the interviews that happen, you know, and, mm -hmm. um, and I'm glad that on one hand that you're not interviewing the Oh, I never, I never interview the family of the historical figures that I'm, that I'm working, 
working with because I need to be free. But you also, because I will feel, you know, you're, you're Filipino, no? You'll have utang na loob, no? Because yeah. you, you talk to them, you know, yes. you, yes. you'll feel bad. So I don't yes. want to, I don't want utang na loob. Exactly, exactly. But also, like, they're also going to just give you what you want to, what you, how they want to be presented, right? I mean, Especially that's also useful, but I, okay, I wouldn't necessarily follow. But my, my problem really is being Filipino and being <laughs> with a person and having a relationship. And I don't want that relationship with you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly no it's great i think that you know because memory is also in, it's 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 imagination i mean that the two are when we're when we're or even memory, with la tercera i could not have written this novel if my mother were alive which is sad yeah. i would be fine with not having written la tercera if my mother were alive uh-huh uh-huh i would be fine but she's not and that's the only way i could have written it or you could have written it, but maybe we won't, we will not have the fortune to read it right now. Yeah, she would be so mad. <laughs> <laughs> so if there are no more questions. Ah, thank you so much, Gina. This is- oh, uh, Thank you so much, Zach. Honolulu and yeah, um, it's been great. And I hope that everyone picked this book up because this is, this is, a good introduction to your world of Gina Apostol's bibliography. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah, you're right. Thank you so much, Zach. Love you. Well, I want to thank you both. This has been such a great deep dive and a real pleasure having you both with us. Gina, congratulations. Another amazing novel. Um, Zach, thank you from the heart. Really appreciate you doing the honors. Such a great job. Also want to thank Lily at Soho Press and yeah. also Mark Doton for all that he's done over oh. the years. Such a great friendship and always a pleasure featuring your books. So I'd like to remind everyone we have posted links with which you may purchase this fantastic book. I have actually given it a recommended read status uh, as a staff member. Um, I think, you know, Gina is writing some of those vital fiction of our day. Um, and that's, I don't give recommended reads very often at the store. I don't let other people do it. But uh, for this one, I had to. I, I feel it's an important book. I hope you all get a chance to read her work. We also carry a lot of other titles as well. I posted links in the chat with which you can check those out. Today's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Uh, through public events like this one, our publishing program and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So thank you, everyone. Please take care. We hope to see you all again soon. Thank you so much, Peter. And thank you so much, City Lights. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Love ciao. to everyone. Ciao. Aloha. Ciao, ciao, ciao. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.